Amen. Judges 3, we left one verse on the table in our study of Judges 3. Judges 3 is the introduction to the first of three judges. Judges covers 13 judges in totality. Judges means heroes or leaders, the men and one woman throughout the 400-year period of time that God raised up deliverers, listen, for the children of Israel as they found themselves in their first generation in the promised land, and they found themselves getting into trouble over and over and over and over again. Now, let me ask you a question, make sure I'm talking to the right crowd. Have you, since becoming a Christian and walking in the promised land, being spirit-filled, have you found yourself getting into trouble more than once? Raise your hand. Raise your hand. Okay. Half of you, the rest of you, are in denial and you're liars. That's okay. We get into trouble. We make commitments to the Lord and we receive gifts from the Lord and we walk with the Lord and yet we get lured and we get detoured and man, we get bamboozled. We make all kinds of mistakes. So listen, this book of Judges is really not so much a story of various judges, though it is that. It really, listen, is a story of God's forgiveness and God's faithfulness. Because when you veer out of bounds and when you do silly things and when you get in trouble, The Lord knows. The Bible actually goes on. Jesus said this, I'm the shepherd who leaves the 99 who are doing okay, and I'm going to go after that one who needs my assistance right now. Is that good news for anybody but me? I am that straying sheep from time to time. I run off and chase stupid stuff. And as we study the book of Judges, we're going to study all kinds of principles of situations, scenes, and circumstances, but it's really all about the Lord. When we study the book of Acts, it's called the Acts of the Apostles. Some of you have read it in the New Testament. It's really not necessarily the Acts of the Apostles as much as it's the Acts of the Holy Spirit, though. It's all God. It's all the gospel. It's all the good news. And yet you and I, we have an opportunity to co-op with the Lord even today and to learn from their mistakes so we don't have to repeat them and have them be our own experiences I want you to consider these two polar opposites. The book of Joshua is the story of God being faithful to the children of Israel. He promised them the land, and he brought them into the promised land. It was a gift to them. It was his faithfulness to them. But judges in the ensuing chapters and seasons aren't so much just about God's faithfulness, but it's about your faithfulness and my faithfulness. Because the Bible says that we're to work out our salvation with fear and trembling. That once the Lord has done what only he can do, saving you, forgiving you, securing you, anointing you, filling you, only he can do that. He now asks you and me to follow after him, to get after it. It's our turn to lead. And this is why it's so important and imperative that we get together on Sundays, that we get together in life groups, that we get together in fours more, that we get together and we study to show ourselves approved so we don't get weird, so we don't get lost. And in Judges chapter 3, we saw three judges introduced. It's kind of interesting to me. I want you to see this. One chapter, three men are introduced. And in the next two chapters, there's one woman that gets two chapters. So we saw three guys share one chapter. But in the next two chapters, one woman takes over the whole thing. Does your wife hog the bed also? (laughs) Sheets, covers, all that stuff. I I don't have any comment there, but I'm just curious, you know, for you. And yet there's one guy, we studied Othniel. You remember Othniel, his name means little lion of God. And God used him powerfully. He led the people and he went to war. But the Bible specifically says that the spirit of the Lord came upon him. It's not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord. 
If you want to, if you need to, if you must be successful moving forward, it can't be your power. It's got to be God's power. How did Othniel find victory, the very first judge to lead the people? I don't know. doesn't say. It was the power of God. And can I just say, if you need success in your marriage or your ministry or whatever you're dealing with right now, man, may it be the Lord's power and not your own. So when other people pat you on the back, you dodge that and let the Lord get the glory. And so when people say, man, I can't believe what God's doing here, you say, I can, because this is what the Lord does. Othniel is that representative, and may we find ourselves leaning into the Spirit of God more and more as we move forward. The second judge that came up, though, was Ehud. Such a fun story last week as we studied Ehud. His name means, I will praise And he was a left-hander, which would have been a deformity or a handicap in those days. And what he did is he fashioned himself a double-edged sword, an 18-inch dagger, hid it on his thigh, and then went into Eglon's tent and thrust it into his blubber belly. Remember the story? And it went deep into his blubber belly, and it went so far in that the handle went and his hand disappeared, and he had to come out. It was last Sunday. It was Mother's Day. It was a perfect sermon. What in the world? If you brought your mom to church last Sunday, I just want to, on behalf of myself, apologize. It would have been so much more appropriate to study Deborah. She actually notes herself in her song as the mother of Israel. We were just one week off, man. And Ehud, the blubber guy, he stabs Eglon. And I'll tell you what, we're learning from his leadership. What did he do? He fashioned a double-edged sword, which speaks of the word of God. And he hid it into his robe, which speaks of hiding it into our hearts. And he applied it to a heavy-duty situation. He said, we got an issue here. we got oppression. What should we do? I'm going to apply the sword. Well, how much of it? It's all going in until it's all been lost in the problem. And they received deliverance. And can I just encourage you with those two bookends, Ehud, which means I will praise, and the one who crafted the double-edged sword. Do you want to find victory in your life? It's going to come from a couple different things. Number one, worshiping God, being a praiser of the Lord, a follower of Yahweh, a seeker of God, one who applies the word of God, one who fashions the sword, one who hides it in your heart, one who applies God's words to heavy-duty situations. And as you read the scriptures, study the scriptures, memorize the scriptures, live by the scriptures, and quote the scriptures and find yourself praising, I promise you it won't be easy for you, but you will be successful in everything. And when I find myself, you speak for yourself right now, but when I find myself getting out of balance, things are kind of getting out of control, things are getting heavy, I can always go back into my recent history and see how much time have I been praising or have I been apathetic and lazy and passive when it comes time to worship? Standing their hands in pockets and not engaged. People are gathering and I'm not going. I can always see in my own history, I haven't been picking up the book and I haven't been engaging in worship. That's my story. Maybe it's yours too. I don't know. And Ehud shows us, do you want to have victory? But not just did we see Othniel, the spirit of God, and Ehud, the word of God. But now open up your Bibles and look at verse 31 of chapter 3 of the book of Judges. I'm going to read it. It says, after him, that's Ehud, was Shamgar, the son of Anath. You can't really say Shamgar unless you're going to say Shamgar, the son of Anath, who killed 600 men of the Philistines with an ox goad. And he also delivered Israel. Stop right there. Eyes up here. One verse allocated to this guy. He just gets one verse. And no details are given. We have to be careful not to make assumptions, but we have to make some connection here. Shamgar's his name. His dad's name's Anath. Shamgar means sword. It would make sense he would be right there with Ehud. 
And his dad's name, Anath, means answer. What's the answer to your big problems? The word of God, the sword of the Lord. And so here, Shamgar applies not the sword that we would do, but the ox goad. Anybody bring your ox goad to church this morning? Anybody ox goads? I had to look it up on the internet to find what an ox goad is. An ox goad is roughly, historically, an eight-foot-long pole that has a point on one end and a flat kind of scraping tool on the other end. And the point would be used to kind of tell the oxen where to go and what to do and what not to do and get them going. And the flat part would be to scrape the mud off the plow as you were farming because that's what oxen do is they plow fields. I say that to say this. Shamgar was a farmer who God used to hold the pass. As a matter of fact, I'm, I'll make the announcement, but if you just go to YouTube and type in hold the pass, there's a 30-minute video, a, a documentary. It's actually a, not a documentary. It's a movie that some people made about Shamgar, and it's all just kind of, it's on you. I'm not, not necessarily promoting the film, but I just did. So go ahead and check it out if you want. Shamgar with an ox goat, 600 Philistines. And so Israel was delivered by him. Now let's just make a few comments about Shamgar because he is indeed one of the minor judges, only gets one verse. And when I get to heaven, I don't want Shamgar to be mad at me for not talking about him. Because he killed 600 Philistines with one tool. Now it doesn't say that he killed all 600 at once. I don't know where your mind goes. Like was it this epic battle, you know, just nonstop, just ox goading people to death? I don't know. Or was he more of a sharpshooter? where he was plowing the fields and he saw maybe a couple troops of Philistines. He's like, I could take them out. I could take them out. They're bad guys. I could take them out. And maybe one at a time over weeks and months, he delivered Israel in that way, 600 in totality. Maybe he kept track. Maybe he had a list of the ones that he'd taken and it wasn't like Schindler's list, but it was Shamgar's list, you know, and just kind of one by one. Anyways, one by one, he's taking them out. I don't know. But I do know this. God wants us to learn from his faithfulness because one could say he didn't even have a sword. He only gets one verse. He wasn't trained in battle, he's just a farmer. And yet here's the good news, here's the great news. Each and every one of us are just like Shamgar. Each and every one of us have something in our hands, something that God's called you to, called me to, called us to. And what God simply calls every single person here this morning, those watching online, those at home, those everywhere, God says, hey, what do you have in your hand? I gave it to you on purpose, to use in order to deliver my people to be a part of my service, whether you're pumping gas or whether you're selling goods or whether you're teaching students or whether you're framing houses or fading hair or delivering mail or teaching or, or cutting, whatever you do. What if each and every one of us said, I'm gonna do what I do for the glory of God and the good of others. Everything I do is gonna be for the glory of God and the good of others. See, it's easy to look at maybe my job and say, well, that's Pastor Luke's job, to shine bright and to be the salt and to be an evangelist and to be a strategist and to build the church and to make things happen. And yes, indeed, that is my roles and responsibility. Yet God has called each and every one of us to simply be faithful in the little things and he'll put us over bigger things. Remember Joseph? Joseph, what's in your hands? Joseph just had some food for his brothers. It didn't go well for him. But then what did he have? He had some orders from, from Potiphar to, to serve his house. And then he had orders from the, the jailer. And he just had orders. And he was just taking what God had put in his hands. David, same thing. David was a shepherd. And he did so as unto the Lord. He had a couple smooth stones. And he threw them at the giant. And God used what he had in his hands. Moses, what did he have in his hand? He had a stick. Remember, he was scared. I don't know what to do. And Moses, God asked him, what do you have in your hands? He's like, I got a stick. 
Well, bring that stick. We're going to need that stick your whole life, Moses. That's, going to be a, that's not going to be just a stick anymore. That's going to be the rod of God, and God's going to use it powerfully. If we would settle into this and believe this, whatever gifts God given, has given to you, maybe you're clerical, clerical in nature and you can organize things. Maybe you're an administrator. Maybe you're a visionary. You don't really know how to make things happen, but you can see what could happen. Maybe you're not a visionary, but you can see how you can structure these things and come behind organizations and bring value to them. I'll tell you what, we learn a ton from this man, and we understand that God wants to use each and every one of us. What about Andrew? Remember when Andrew came to Jesus one day? What did he have in his hand? He had a Lunchable. Remember he had a Lunchable, and the Capri Sun and the Reese's peanut butter cup were already gone. He'd already sucked, you know, eaten. Oh, no, you know. Five loaves and two fish. What are these among so many? And God says, that's perfect, Andrew. Good job. And he took out of his hand what he had, and he blessed thousands and thousands and thousands. See, the Lord has given to each one of us the same amount of minutes in every single day. How we invest them is up to us. Each one of us have some time. Each one of us have some talent. Each one of us have some treasure. Every single one of us. And the Lord says, I gave that to you on purpose. Don't just waste it. Don't just use it on yourself. Use it for my glory and use it for others' good. And God challenges us with our stuff, doesn't he? Man, your stuff's not your stuff, really. It's his stuff. And I believe our church is very generous with our time, talent, and treasure, our days, dollars, and deeds. There is, though, a challenge every single generation, every single season of our life to ask ourselves, Lord, am I available to you? Lord, am I being used for your glory? So often we find young people in our church get super excited about the Lord, and they want to start ministries and go on mission trips and change the world, and the young people are all fired up, aren't they? But young people are also broke. And they want to change the world and change everything, and they don't have money, and they don't have wisdom, and they're just going to wreck everything, they don't have anything. Then you have maybe sometimes, generally speaking, the older crowd, and, and they, they, they have some money, and they have some wisdom, but they're too tired, and their backs hurt too bad to go travel to the rest of the world and start ministries. And so you got the older people who have the money and the wisdom, but they don't want to do anything. Then you got the young people who don't have any wisdom or money. They want to do everything. Wouldn't it be awesome to connect those two together? And the Lord says, hey, what do you got? And Shamgar said, I just got an ox goad. I just have an ox goad. 600 men of the Philistines were delivered into Israel's hands. And we have excuses, and we have all these things. It's interesting, there's an excuse in the scriptures that actually uses this very weapon. Jesus to Saul, remember Saul, when he said, Saul, Saul, why are you kicking against the, the goads? He was trying to call Saul, who would become the apostle Paul. He said, hey, man, you're, you're kicking against this weapon, this tool. I've got something for you to do. What was in Paul's hands when he finally got saved and used by God? He had two things primarily. He had a pen and a passport. That's all he had. And he would travel the world, the apostle Paul. He was going all over the place, man, frequent mile, mile nightmare, man. That guy was getting free trips all the time. They weren't really free trips. That guy was traveling, and he was writing. That's all he had. Changed your life. Changed my life. Do you want to change someone's life? Wouldn't that be awesome if you get to heaven, there's dozens and hundreds and thousands of people that came up to you and said, man, you changed my life. You changed my life. Your investment, your ministry, your faithfulness. And you might look back and say, are you serious? I didn't even see the connection. I was just being faithful with the, the little bit of time that I had. I was being faithful with what God had. Let me just give you five points and we'll move on because I've got to cover some ground here. Uh, number one, if you're writing this down, if you're a note taker about Shamgar, number one, he used what he had. See, the Israelites had been de-weaponized. 
The Philistines had taken over all their other real weapons. They didn't have anything that they were supposed to have. So he just used what he had. So often we make excuses for ourselves because we don't have what we want. We don't have what we think we need. Okay, if you needed anything other than what you have, God would give it for you. He would give it for you. But right now, he's given you whatever he's given you. That's what you need. Surrender it to the Lord, and it will become a mighty force to be reckoned with. He used what he had. Are you willing to be used by the Lord with what you have? Number two, he was available to the Lord. Okay, this guy makes the Bible one verse because he was available to the Lord. The greatest ability in Christianity is availability. Just avail yourself. Lord, what do you want to do? Every single day. What if South Beach Church woke up every single day from now and said, okay, Lord, I avail myself to you. I'm going to the schools to teach. Lord, I'm going to the roads to drive. Lord, I'm going here to serve in this way. Whatever you want to do. Here I am, Lord. Use me. He was available. Number three, he was persistent. You know how hard it would be to kill 600 Philistines with an ox goad? I mean, talk about like Maybe after like 380, you're like, this is crazy, you know? Like, what is happening? And there needs to be this kind of hearty persistence within Christians and believers. Just one at a time, just poking one at a time. You know, one. I don't know how he killed them. 600 of them. And I need to hear this word because I've been running with the Lord for a while now. And occasionally, every once in a while, I wonder, Lord, how many more days is there in this race? And the Lord says, just be persistent. Don't give up. Keep going. Some days are easier than others, aren't there? Some days are harder than others. He was persistent. Number four, he had faith in the Lord. He was just there. And he trusted that what he did was going to be matched by what only God could do. You got to believe this. As a believer in Jesus Christ, you can't trust your own resources. You can't trust my resources. You can't trust the government's resources. But you can trust God's resources. And you can step out on water when Jesus says, do it. And you can take water that's been turned into wine and serve it to the master and trust that I'm just just doing what he said. I'm going to give this cup of water to somebody and it's going to be the best thing they've ever enjoyed. Do you know this? When you open up your mouth, when you serve others, he had faith in the Lord. And then the last one's a little bit longer. I'm just going to say it though. I wrote it down this way. He didn't let his lack of resources discourage him or determine his obedience. He didn't let his lack of resources discourage him. Oh, that's a good one. Especially if God's called you to major things, big things, big obstacles, big battles right now. And you're quickly going to go to your resources. Well, how much do I got? How much can I get? Where are we going to get the rest? Okay. And you just do what God's asked you to do. Don't worry about the rest. God's given to us minds. We can calculate. We can predict. We can project all those things. It's not a bad thing. He had no choice, though, and he didn't let his lack of resources discourage him or determine his obedience. We can make so many excuses why we don't engage, why we stress. He, listen, simply did the next right thing. Do that, Christian. Do the next right thing and trust the Lord to bring the increase. He becomes a judge in Israel, and God used him mightily. Let's move on now into chapter 4. And it says, when Ehud, he was alive with Shamgar, when Ehud was dead, the children of Israel again did evil in the sight of the Lord. And so the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. The commander of his army was Sisera, who dwelt in Herosheth, Hajoyim. Oh man, this is a great story. 
Ehud dies now, and the children of Israel again do evil in the sight of the Lord. We're going to see this repeated over and over and over again. I want to make some comments, though, of what I alluded to at the beginning of the sermon. Ehud, his name means I will praise. He was the one who fashioned a double-edged sword. And under his reign, the children of Israel had peace for the longest time of any judge, 80 years. Why did they have peace for 80 years? Because they were praising and they were studying. Period. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Let's say it together. Read your Bible and pray every single day. One more time. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Now, when men and women get in trouble and they come to me for counsel or questions or prayers, oftentimes I'm tempted to say, no, no, I'm not going to meet with you, I'm not going to pray for you, I'm not going to counsel you. Oftentimes I'm tempted, I never do say no, but I'm tempted to, because what I want to do is ask them a question, are you reading your Bible and praying every single day? Now, usually when I ask people that question, they quickly say yes, I'm like, don't lie to me. Liar, you know. Reading your Bible and praying every single day will not keep you from trouble, okay? But you will prevail over all of your troubles. I promise you. And when I find my life spinning out of control, and again, the children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord, it's because I've stopped reading my Bible, I've stopped praying, and I've stopped praising it. It just kind of goes to the wayside. Ehud dies. What happens? They get all locked up again. They get all shacked up again with the enemy. Things start falling apart. It's so simple, isn't it? It's just so simple. But there needs to be a discipline, a daily, if not moment reminder. Read your Bible and pray every single day. Because what we learn from Ehud, when the sword goes in, the stuff comes out. Remember when he stabbed Eglon and he hit the colon artery kind of section there and the stuff came out? That's what it said. It was nasty. And you've discovered this when you're in the Word, some of that stuff that's also in you, it just starts to come out, man, and it's nasty. And yet the Lord reveals that to get that stuff out of you. And the Word of God is a purifier, it's a renewer, it's a restorer. You need help today? Are you in too deep? Things overwhelming you, heavy-duty oppression, sinful tendencies, carnalities, repeat offenses, all those things, get in the scriptures. Well, we see here in verse one again, Ehud was dead. The children of Israel did evil in the sight of the Lord. Look at verse two and let's study some things. Buckle up, I'm gonna offend you right now. It's gonna be awesome. Here's what it says in verse two. So the Lord sold them into the hand of Jabin, king of Canaan. Jabin, his name means God who observes. And Canaan means lowland. And so God all of a sudden sees the children of Israel acting silly, and he sells them into the king of Jabin. Now, God observes. God knows everything they're doing. And so what God does is he sells them to the king of Canaan, the lowland king. They start finding their lives kind of going through a low season, a bummer deal. And so what God does is he disciplines them, and he reigned in Hazor, that means castle, and the commander of his army was Sisera. Pay attention to these names. They're important. Sisera means field of battle. Man, this guy was an array of battle things and all kinds of battle scenes we're going to see from Sisera. This is what happened to the children of Israel. God sold them into Jabin, the king of Canaan, who lived in Hazor. And he had a commander named Sisera. 
Now, let me just go ahead and extract a point here. God disciplines those whom he loves, amen? He disciplines them because he loves them. And because he loves us, when we get into trouble and start acting silly, God will sell us as well into one shape or another of forms to get our attention. Now, I say that to say this. We are in a generation, 2023 now, a generation that has kind of poo-pooed on discipline. We've kind of gotten away from normal discipline, and there's all kinds of shadows now, and you shouldn't be you know, disciplined. You should kind of have talks with your kids and just kind of reason with them and let them decide what's true for them and what's true for us, and there's no more discipline by and large, generally speaking. And I just want to kind of arbitrarily connect the dots. This generation is the generation that's coming out of this idea of let's not discipline our kids. Let's just see what happens. And here we are now in 2000, cuckoo 23. Let me just read to you what the Bible says about discipline. This is in the book of Proverbs. It says this in Proverbs chapter 13. It says, he who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Last verse, the righteous eats to the satisfying of his soul, but the stomach of the wicked shall be in want. What's it say? It says that if you hate your son, your child, the people next to you, your athletes, your students, the people that you're leading, if you hate them, you're just going to let them do whatever they want. But if you love them, you're going to discipline them promptly. None of this one, two, don't make me count to a thousand, 975, you know, Discipline them promptly. My mom and dad are here. Were they right there? My mom and dad disciplined me. They spanked me. I had consequences for my actions. And it taught me a lot of things. It taught me that I wasn't the boss. It taught me that I'm not in charge, which is a key principle to life. I'm not the boss. I'm not in charge. It taught me consequences to my actions. Everything I do is going to have a consequence. And even in that minute, if I got a swat, or if I got a paddle, or if I got a timeout, or if I got a lecture, it's because I got out of bounds, and I need to know that that's going to cost me moving forward. And here it says that God raised up Jabin, the king of Canaan, who lived in Hazor, and Sisera, a bad guy, to discipline the children of Israel. Interesting that We tend to shy away from discipline and from holding people accountable more and more. Did you know that discipline and accountability, though, speaks of love almost more than anything else? If I'm acting out of line, if I'm not doing it right, if I'm coming up short and you don't tell me, it literally is because you love yourself more than you love me. Let that settle in for just a minute. If we don't hold the people under us or around us accountable in in love, it's because we love ourselves more. I'd rather not get uncomfortable. I'd rather not cause a scene. I'm kind of passive and apathetic and lazy. I'm not going to discipline that person or hold them accountable. I heard one illustration of two young boys uh, arguing or talking about their curfew. And one was complaining, saying, man, I can't believe my parents make me come home at 10. What a drag. And the other boy said, your parents make you come home at 10? My parents don't care when I come home. And all of a sudden, in a moment, the other boy heard the word care. My parents don't care. And it might sound appealing as a young person. Oh, man, that'd be so cool to have parents that don't care. Eh, Not so. Not true. But instead, we want parents. We want a God who cares so much that he says, I'm going to discipline you. I'm going to hold you accountable. And this goes against our flesh, does it not? I mean, who wants to be held accountable? Boo, you know, in my flesh. But I know I need it. 
Otherwise, I'm not going to grow. I'm going to find myself spinning out and doing silly things and getting silly prizes. I want you guys to see this. We're going to see it repeated over and over. Is the wrath of God and the discipline of God really from a loving God? Yes, it is. Absolutely it is. And God raises up this guy named Jabin, whose name means God observes, in the lowlands, in this castle, and this bad guy, Sisera, who dwelt, by the way, in Herosheth Hajoyim. Literally, that means the woods of the Gentiles. Isn't that a crazy place? So God raises up the Jews to be in the woods of the Gentiles, and they're all messed up. It gives us more description. Look at verse 3. And the children of Israel cried out to the Lord, for Jabin had 900 chariots of iron, and for 20 years he had harshly oppressed the children of Israel. Stop right there, eyes up here. We've seen this story before. 20 years of harsh oppression, and Jabin has... Hundreds and 900 chariots of iron. This is before the children of Israel moved into the Iron Age. They were in oppression. They didn't have this. This would have been the equivalent of Sherman tanks cruising around Newport, just kind of rolling around, you know, just blasting whatever they want. We're under heavy oppression here, and they cry out once again. Can I just encourage you, if you're under any oppression today, if you've done silly things, if you find yourself being taken over, God observes, he knows, and he only brings those things to the surface in order to extract them and to deliver us. They cry out. Now let's get to the good part of the story. Look at verse 4. It says, now Deborah, a prophetess, the wife of Lapidoth, I'm not sure if you say it Lapidoth, but it's just that's the only way I can do it. Lapidoth was judging Israel at that time. Stop right there, I appear. Two characters are now introduced. Deborah and Lapidoth. We're not going to see anything coming from Lapidoth because Deborah's in charge. Deborah, her name literally means bumblebee. And she was sharp and she was sweet all at the same time. She had her whole act together. Let's actually read just a little bit. It says in verse 5, and she would sit under the palm tree of Deborah. She has a palm tree named after her. That's pretty legit. Between Ramah and Bethel, that's the house of God, in the mountains of Ephraim. And the children of Israel came up to her for judgment. Can you picture the scene? This is all in tandem with Jabin. God will observe. Sisera, field of battle. There's bad things going on, and God raises up a woman named Deborah. She has a little palm tree over there. It's probably right next to the Dutch bros, and she's all posted up. And people would come to her for judgment and for issues that were too big for them to deal with. They would come and get wisdom from her, bring a matter, and she would have a word from the Lord and have wisdom and discernment, be able to get to the root of the issue for their situation. It's kind of a palm tree joke there, the root of the issue. Okay. Nothing would stump her. People would come to turn over a new leaf. Anyways, it'll work better at the 11. They're more gracious. She's there at the palm tree. And God's gifted her. There's only six times in the Old Testament this word prophetess is used. Five times in the positive. Once it's a false prophetess in the book of Nehemiah. And the word literally means she's an inspired woman. We're going to see in chapter 5 she writes a song. And it's a prophetical song. And most connect that prophetess gifting to be able to put songs together. But it says here specifically she has wisdom. People come to her and they don't know what to do and she judges their situation and gives them advice and points them to the Lord. Now all of this is in tandem where they cried out for help and God raised up Deborah. I'm going to say something that's offensive in the year 2023, uh, but I need you to understand the context. This is 4,000 years ago. 
And so in 2023, we're like, yeah, Deborah, awesome. 3,000, 4,000 years ago, this would have been a shameful scene. In those days, women didn't raise, be raised up in this way. Women weren't leaned on for leadership and for counsel and wisdom and for deliverance. I believe this did happen and God was gracious and did anoint this woman and give her his spirit to be used, but it's a direct slam against the nation of Israel, especially the men, because the men weren't willing to lead. The men weren't willing to be used. The men weren't willing to be leaned on. They were cowardice in nature. And so when they needed helpers, Ehud is gone. No one's there to lead. And this would indeed be shameful. But God is gracious. And he raised up this woman. Now, 4,000 years later, okay, culturally things have changed quite a bit. We know from the scriptures that the Bible says God created male and female in his image. And they're equal, but they're different. And we know through the scriptures, Old and New Testament, that God created roles and responsibilities for men and roles and responsibilities for women. And what this picture shows me is that women can be and should be mightily and powerfully used in the ministry of God. Because there is a tendency to have the pendulum swing over and say women ought to be in certain positions but not other positions and therefore their positions are lower and not exalted. God raises up and puts down those whom he desires to. And the Bible speaks specifically of roles for men and roles for women in the New Testament. But here, this is a highlight for Deborah, and God is going to use her powerfully. Her name, again, means bumblebee, which I think is appropriate because she's sweet, but she also has a sting to her. Did you know bumblebees can smell a single flower two miles away? And they'll flap all the way over there. Bumblebees are so smart, they can actually train bumblebees to detect and to smell cancer in precancerous patients that don't know they have cancerous tumors. They can train them to detect that. A bumblebee flaps its wings 200 times per second. That's why they make that sound. That's the sound. It's so fast. Did you know that honey, what bumblebees produce, is the only the only food in, in all of creation that has every single nutrient necessary to sustain life, every single nutrient is recorded in, the, in honey. And did you know that a honeybee, when it lives its lifespan five to six weeks as a worker honeybee, producing honey all summer long, will produce one drop of honey in the extent of their life? A twelfth of a teaspoon per honeybee. Honeybees, bumblebees, there's 20,000 different bee species. I did a lot of bee research last night. I wanted to be ready. Wanted to be ready. Be ready. I just, that was, that was a good one, thank you. Anyways, we're moving on, yeah. She's a great lady, but bumblebees, they also, when they're the only bees of the 20,000 bee species, they're the only bees that when they sting somebody, they, they do indeed die. Wasps and all those other crazy ones, they don't die, they just keep stinging and getting after it. But let's study this woman's story, and by the way, it's not just this woman, there's gonna be another woman in chapter four and five, and her name is J.L., and her name means mountain goat, and she was awesome. Let's keep studying here. This girl, Deborah, look at verse six. It says, then she sent, and she called for Barack. Now, we know Barack was also the 44th president of the United States of America. Barack, it might be a different Barack, I'm not sure, but the spelling's a little bit different. Barack, the son of Abinoam from Kadesh and Naphtali. And she said to him, has not the Lord God commanded and here's the command. Go and deploy troops at Mount Tabor. Take with you 10,000 men of the sons of Naphtali, 
and Zebulun. And against you, I will deploy Sisera, the commander of Javan's army, and his chariots and his multitude at the river Kishon, and I will deliver him into your hands. Stop right there, eyes up here. Deborah now receives a word from the Lord. The children of Israel crying out to the Lord. And Deborah receives a word for Barak, and she calls 